we're trying to do in this sermon series is really overcome what you could call the LeBron James syndrome, which is the temptation in the presence of somebody who's just so great at what they do to keep handing the ball to him. And the LeBron James syndrome is not just something that the Lakers are going to have to face. It's something that all of us as followers of Jesus face because it's so easy to look at ourselves and go, I don't know what I could do to help anybody or get involved in the mission of Jesus. I'll just hand the ball to somebody else or even just stay in the bleachers. And that's not what Jesus wants for his followers. He wants us on the court. And, uh, and actually, I think that's not what we want for ourselves either. We, we've got gifts. We've got game. We want to be in the action. So our interests and Jesus' commission kind of align. We're trying to figure out how to do that, how to equip one another uh, to use our gifts in the mission of Jesus. So that's where we are. I think the point that I'd like to make today is uh, you've got a source of grace, and it's meant for people in this place, okay? Uh, let's open up our Bibles. We'll get to that in a second. We're going to look at 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 7 through 11. If you're able, please uh, stand and uh, turn to page 985. When we're done reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. If you believe it, you can say, thanks be to God. Join me in reading 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 7 through 11, listen carefully. You're reading God's holy word. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies, so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated and please keep the book open. Uh, the grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord lasts forever. Last week, the headline in the Chronicle of Higher Education uh, is The Big Lie. This is their lead story, The Big Lie. And it's about a professor, a chemistry professor, who forged an offer letter for himself from another university, and he gave it to his dean to try to ante up a negotiation that would improve his compensation at his uh, current university. It was a big lie. Uh, it's a surprise because this man's career started really in a great way at Harvard University, a postdoc. Uh, he was recruited by this university. The dean of the chemistry department uh, particularly admired his work, had big plans for him. Uh, she watched over him. And uh, yet, after a few years, he began to feel like others were being passed over him. They were getting more salary, more lab space, uh, more status than he was. And his wife didn't like his salary. She was complaining that he wasn't paid enough. And he made the observation that the people who seemed to really be valuable in this academic culture were people who 
had uh, kind of a, a resume that made other universities want to poach them away. So you get this, this idea, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll write, forge a letter from another university hiring me away at better terms and I'll renegotiate my compensation. Well, it turned out to be a disaster. Uh, the end of the story is not pretty. He, he, uh, he's exposed, the letter's exposed, he loses his job, he loses the next job, his marriage implodes, and now he's facing uh, criminal charges. It's a disastrous, horrible story. What interests me is at the end of the article, the two writers kind of draw a conclusion. I just, I was struck by the last couple sentences and I want to read them to you. They write, these tiny battles for resources and validation can consume a professor. But they do little to answer what became for this professor an essential question, what am I worth? He's still asking that question, the one that got him into this mess in the first place. Wow, isn't that interesting? I, th I think what the writers are doing, they're going, you know what? One way or another, whether you're a faculty member or a student or just an ordinary human being, we are all asking the most pressing question, what am I worth? As we read the epistle that Peter wrote, that you just read, Peter doesn't tell us it's a bad question. What he tells us is, I have found a better answer to the question. What you read in this article is that really the big lie isn't so much the fraudulent letter, the big lie is the belief that you can answer the question, what am I worth, in your career, in your salary, in your prestige, in your status, in your peer group. Many of us are believing that lie and living out of that lie, and the end of the story will be disastrous. And Peter is saying, I found a different a source. I found a better way to answer that question, what am I worth? So uh, when Peter says this in verse 7, that the end of all things is near, he's talking not just about us and our relationship with Jesus, but he's also talking about our neighbors, the people around us, that like us are trying to answer the same question without necessarily having the resource of Jesus. Look at verse 7. Uh, the end of all things is near, he says. And here's my first point of two. It's that you've got what your neighbor most needs. I'm saying today that you have what your neighbor most needs because you have a story with a better ending. Now, this phrase of Peter's is what theologians would call eschatology. Eschaton means end. So it's a fancy word for uh, a philosophy of the end. He says the end of all things is near. It's eschatology. But I want to suggest to you that every single person in this room has an eschatology, though you maybe never heard that word before. You, you, you and I are all living in some kind of a story, and whether we think it, about it or not, this story has an implicit ending to it. For some of us, we think it's going to be a happy ending. Others of us, I think it's going to be a horrible ending. You know, we've got the whole range of whether it leads towards fulfillment or disappointment, whether it's about success or failure. By the way, last night, an asteroid 17 stories high passed just by the Earth, right? Some of us, are, are, the story of our ending is, you know, disaster. Uh, and, and, and Peter, though, he's saying, you know, you have a better, uh, you have a better story with a better ending. 
And that's implied when he says the end is near. Let's uh, flip back to chapter 1. Here's, here's the ending of the story as Peter has presented it already for his readers. Verse 3, he says, uh, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. By his great mercy, he's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance, that's coming, that's the future, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. It's reserved, who are being preserved, protected by the power of God through faith for, and here it is, a salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Again, eschatology. He says, you and I, because we've met Jesus Christ, have been born again, we're on a trajectory towards salvation. Now, that doesn't just mean forgiveness for your sins and that you go to heaven. Salvation is a Jewish concept that's rich. We would probably call it healing, the healing of all things, the restoration of God's original intent. This is the end of our story. This is where we're heading. This is what Jesus is doing. That's your future. It's protected for you. It's reserved by the power of God. You're, we are resurrection people, which means the worst thing is never the last thing, and the last thing is the best thing. That's where we're going. Now, I, I want you to see, this isn't just for us. It's easy to miss the implication in Peter's letter that he's telling them these things because our neighbors need to know this as much as we do. Our neighbors need a better story just as much as we do, and this story isn't just for us. Notice, Paul's really interested in location, Peter, in this letter. If, if stay in, in, uh, in uh, chapter 1, he addresses his readers by virtue of where they are to the exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. These are five Roman provinces in modern-day Turkey. Then it was Asia Minor. He's like, I know where you are. You're in these five promises, provinces. Notice he's, you've been chosen to be there. The word a little bit further down, verse 2, you've been chosen, he says, and destined. Actually, the word chosen means called out. And in the Greek, the way Peter really originally wrote it, called out, that chosen, that's a, like a fourth word in the sentence. It comes right after Christ. It's the emphasis. He said, you've been chosen, you've been called out in these locations for a mission. He's referring to the diaspora, he uses that word dispersion. You, you know that after the exile, Israel was sent out in all different places around the Mediterranean Sea, north, south, east. Dispersion, you're all over the place. But now he's suggesting maybe, just maybe, you're there by God's intent. The word dispersion is like a, a farming word. You can imagine a farmer, she's, she's going out with seed in her hand and she's broadcast scattering seed. She's just throwing it out like, God has thrown you out. God has thrown you out all these places. He's thrown where you are, like a piece of seed, you're stuck in soil and you're there because God has assigned you there. I want you to think about where you are. Because for Peter, the best way to know what you're called to do is in, in, in the three parts of it, location, location, location. You know, we often say, God, you know, what's your will for my life? Am I supposed to take the job in Austin or supposed to take the job in Minneapolis? I don't know. Where am I supposed to go? And God's like, you are right where I want you to be. doesn't mean don't move. But, it, but, but the first way to know what God wants you to do and who he wants you to be is to look at where he's put you. That's diagnostic. It's significant. It's an assignment. You're there to be on mission as a representative of Jesus Christ. You're in the game. And these are the people with whom you're playing. This is what I think 
Peter is saying when he says the end is near. Does it echo any of the teaching of Jesus? Just think about where he might have learned this, Peter. Remember how Je what Jesus said, his most basic message, wherever he went, the Gospels tells us, he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's near. So this is what Peter's saying. Salvation is here. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is near, he's meaning it's here in time and space. In, in the Jewish thought, the end was not something to be feared. They, their, their eschatology did not involve doom. It involves salvation. And so when Jesus comes around and he says, the kingdom of heaven, and here he's saying the end of the age, which is to be inaugurated by God's Messiah, has already begun. I'm the one beginning it. And there's this overlap of the ages. The end begins today, and it's right here in front of you, time and space. Should you choose to embrace me, you can step into salvation right now. And Peter's saying, look, you are where you are because God has an intent to draw your neighbors into that salvation. So just think about it for a minute. We just blessed educators. Maybe your fifth grade desk has been assigned to you not just by your teacher but by God because God has an intent for that person next to you. Maybe you have the job you have, not just because God cares about the work you do, but because God has an intent for the salvation of your coworker. Maybe you live where you live in that apartment, that fraternity house, that, because the person across the hall or across the street is a person that God wants in time and space to experience salvation, and he's pre-positioned you for that opportunity. And you say, as a good Presbyterian, well, if God wants to give my neighbor salvation, he'll just give it to them, right? Praise God. And, and you know what? And, and I believe that. But you know what? He's already initiated the sequence of actions that's necessary by pre-positioning you. You're there. God's already taken the first step. I put a Christian right there. Drop the pin right over the house. And you're that person for that neighbor. And so Peter's inviting his readers into this incredible adventure. You've got what your neighbor most needs. I just wonder if that chemistry professor had a Christian in his life. You know, just kind of imagine for a second. What if, what if there were a colleague at the university? What if there were a graduate student in his lab? What if there were a freshman in Org 101? I mean, what if there were a brother-in-law or a Christian who lived in the apartment across the hall? It's not an academic question for me, quote unquote, because I had a bunch of my neighbors in my house last Saturday, and I'm looking around the room, and I realize oh, the majority of the people in my dining room actually are UW faculty or were. They're retired UW faculty. And I thought, wow, I'm really intimidated now. I better use my big words. <laughs> it's why I don't understand much of what they're talking about most of the time. But I thought, is it possible that God has put me in this neighborhood to bless them? And that's why I'm here. I wonder, I look at these people, none of them, I would for a second think, are capable of forging a letter to their dean. But they're strikingly like me, and I know my heart, and I'm very capable of believing the big lie. And I wonder if they are too. All right, let me move on to the second point. So um, you've got what your neighbor most needs. Peter calls us, in verse 10 though, to be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Therefore, he says, be good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now this means, secondly, invite your neighbors into a culture of grace. A culture of grace is different from just talking about grace, by the way. 
But let's just back up and go, you know, grace changes everything, doesn't it? I mean, that's why we're here at UPC in this morning, because grace changes everything. You, we could go around, how many people's lives have been changed totally by grace? You know, we could raise our hands, we could stand up and tell stories all day long about how grace has, just the grace of God is transforming us. And, and Peter is no exception to that. I mean, Peter's famous for, for grace, right? He tells the big lie. Remember, not just once, but three times. He denies Jesus in Jesus' moment of need. I've also thought there's very little difference between Jesus and Judas. Think about it. What's the difference between both of them believe the big lie? The difference is it destroys Judas, but it transforms Peter. Why? Because he goes back to Jesus and finds grace. That's, the, that's why you have Peter. Grace changes his life. It's interesting, this question, what am I worth? Uh, I do think we're all asking that question, and we don't always ask it in the most productive way. But here's the, that professor did know this much, that you know what something's worth by what someone's willing to pay for it, right? That was the insight that made him write this fake letter. Well, Peter knows the same thing. And what does Peter tell his readers someone has paid for you? Look at chapter 1, verse 18, for you have not been redeemed, which means bought, from your futile way of life by silver or gold, but by the precious blood of Christ. The precious blood of Christ. Now, let me ask you, what are you worth? I just wonder if the Chronicle of Higher Education has any inkling of the great answer that the follower of Jesus Christ has to that question. What are you worth? The precious blood of Christ. You've been purchased with that? Me? You? I mean, what's more valuable than God's only begotten Son? What matters more than the fact that God chose you over life itself? I don't understand that, but I know what it means is you've got a lot of worth. You're off the charts in value to God. You couldn't get more status or prestige or commendation. So we don't have to, you know, most of the world is trying to build a resume and present it to the world. Those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, essentially what Jesus has done is you take my resume and you present it to the Father. And that's how you know who you are. You've been loved, embraced. So grace is what changes everything. But let me move on to the other aspect of this. Remember I said that we're to invite our neighbors into a culture of grace. Peter is very interested in culture. Culture. Why culture? Because culture makes things visible. I uh, did some missionary work years ago in uh, what was only until recently the Soviet Union and on our way back, my wife and I and our team stopped in Vienna. And um, I had never been in a German-speaking country before. I know no German. I'm pretty good with languages. I can usually figure out Romance languages and, and, and German. Just I could, I could even do the Cyrillic better than, you know, everything was some Strasse something. And all the words were so long, you know, Strudel, Strasse, you know. And I, and I, I was totally dependent on my wife, which was very uncomfortable for me. And I felt <laughs> incompetent. She loved it. <clears throat> but... <laughs> What it did for me is, it, 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 first it confounded me. 
because it was so different, everything. And then it intrigued me. And I wanted to know more. I wanted to, to speak the language. I wanted to eat the food. I wanted to know the people. I wanted to know what it was that made Germany, what it, you know, or in Austria, uh, um, what, what, what that culture was about. And I just wonder if Peter isn't saying, look, I'm going to tell you how to build culture so that your neighbors look in and go, first, it's confounding. That's so different from what I'm used to. Second, it's intriguing, and I just want to get to know more and more about it, and I want to know the source of this culture. See, when he says, like good stewards, um, be good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serving one another with whatever gift you have been given, he's saying, I want you to take action now to build a new culture. And it's going to be a culture of grace. It's going to be a culture that makes grace visible. It's, it's not going to be just go out and talk about grace. It's going to be live in such a way with your neighbors that they actually see and experience, are confounded by but ultimately intrigued by grace. And want to go, where does that come from? Now, we're talking about spiritual gifts here. Peter takes us into this. And I've told you each week that the word grace is charis in Greek. The word gift is charisma. So here, more than any other place in the New Testament, you can see how intentionally linked together they are. Peter says there's this manifold grace. The word manifold means um, a various. It's translated earlier in the letter as various disease, uh, various trials. Various, manifold, multifaceted, multicolored is sometimes used, um, multi-sided. This is grace, and it's got many different parts to it. And, 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 and as you, you are stewards of that manifold grace through the gifts that God has given you, you as a community corporately present to the world God and his grace. And he gets glory, and Jesus Christ is revealed. That's where the passage goes. So in the last service, I was looking for an illustration of this, and I had this whole elaborate thing about pirates and uh, the pirate ship being that, that ship of grace, that source, and you come and, and individual pirates jump onto your boat, and some have, have a hook, and some have wooden legs, and some have patches, and they're all different, and they have different gifts, and they, but it, it doesn't work out very well because pirates... <laughs> don't have a good intent. Um, so I, I, and, and somebody said, I have a better illustration for you, George. And they said, it's the stained glass. It's right behind you. And I'm like, oh, yeah. So, this, so the stained glass, like it's one thing. It's, that's, the, that's the picture of Jesus. It's one thing, one complete experience of a picture of grace, but each individual pain, each color, each, that, those are the gifted members that can kind of fork out of that grace and give and give witness to that grace in their own individual way. I think this is a, a better illustration, and I think this is what Peter is calling his community to. He doesn't have lists of, of gifts like Paul does, but he groups them into two categories. There seem to be the speaking gifts and the serving gifts. And he's like, you know, go read Paul's letters or make it up yourself. It doesn't really matter what gift. There are as many different gifts as there are uh, people who believe in Jesus who are filled by the Holy Spirit. But the point is that as you use those gifts, you create relationship, you build community, you knit together a new culture. And this is, this is the, the theme. You kind of have to get the context to get this. Um, this is Peter's preoccupied with being an alternative culture. He, he refers to his readers as resident aliens. You saw that even in verse 1, your exiles. It doesn't mean they've gone anywhere. What's happened is they stayed right where they are in the same culture in which they were raised, but they now know Jesus Christ. You've been born again, and they have this experience of grace that's so transformational that there's this new culture breaking into their lives. And so when the people around them see us, they're supposed to go, wow, I don't quite get it. 
but then I'm intrigued and I want more of it. Maybe I don't know how to live without it. And I'm drawn in not towards us so much, but towards Jesus. So what I'm saying is that you've got what your neighbor most needs. And as we use the gifts that God has given us, we invite our neighbors into a culture of grace. You've got a source of grace, and it's meant for this place, wherever God has put you. Many years ago, I did campus ministry in Boston uh, with crew, and I was a chaplain at MIT and, uh, and too. And we would meet with all kinds of students and talk to them about Jesus, and we did events, and we did gatherings of all kinds. Um, and it was very exciting, but oftentimes quite discouraging because we didn't see as many students come to know Jesus as we hoped, as is so often the case. But one year, there was something very dramatic that happened. Um, at Harvard, a handful of students came to faith in Jesus Christ, and it was really compelling. I mean, each of them in their own way could tell a story of how God had gotten their attention and turned them around, and we were like, what happened there? Well, looking closer, it turned out that all of those students were in the same house. They were all in the same dorm. And the year before, three sophomores had said, you know what, let's just stay in this dorm and live in intentional Christian community with one another and with our fellow students. And those not yet believing students began to experience grace, and pretty soon they were not not yet believing students. See, you and I have an assignment. Wherever you are, I want you to consider that perhaps you're there because God has put you there with an intent for your neighbor. I want you to think about the fact that the moment the church of Jesus Christ ceases to understand that we exist not for ourselves, but for the people who are outside of ourselves, is the very moment that the church ceases to become the church of Jesus Christ. You and I are here for the salvation of our neighbors. We're here for the salvation of the world. That's our mission, and we've been equipped to do it. And notice the promise that Peter gives, and that's that when you do it, God is at work. When you speak, he says here in chapter 4, it's going to be God giving you the words. When you serve, he says, it's going to be God supplying the strength. I just wonder what would have happened if this chemistry professor and his wife had had a community of Christians come and gather around them with grace. Not a perfect group of people, but a group of people just like you and me, ordinary people, people who no longer need to pretend or try to be perfect, people who no longer believe the big lie, and because we don't believe it anymore, we can be vulnerable with one another. We have a better answer to the fundamental question that allows us to serve one another, to be a community that brings healing, that brings growth. It would be a community of people that as this couple got to know them, they would realize that somehow they're living in the presence of another person that they've never met, that they've never seen, an invisible person whom they consider to be of inestimable value but who conveys into their lives a quality of beauty, a quality of love, a quality of grace that they want very much and that they yearn to meet this person. And if they meet him, it might just be that he would change their lives, change their marriage, and change their careers. Let's pray. God, we want this. We do pray for this, for this couple that are actually in Colorado, uh, but we, more importantly, we, we pray for the people that are all around us, in our workplaces, in our homes, dormitories, uh, virtual neighborhoods in which we live. You've placed us there. You've given us the advantage of relationship 
with these neighbors. And so hear us now as we bring them before you in prayer and ask that if there's any way you can use us to use our gifts together with one another that will invite them to taste and see that you are good and experience the fullness of salvation that you intend for them. We pray you do it in Jesus' name. Amen.